Welcome to Composers in a Jukebox, a podcast that brings together a special breed of musicians in a conversation about their craft. We are excited to be in the presence of Eric Whitaker today, a composer of choral, wind and orchestral music whose works have inspired so many around the world, students and professionals alike. Welcome. Hello, Eric. Thanks, guys. Welcome. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to be here with all of you. Yeah, I was so delighted to have you, Eric. Um, I've enjoyed and played and conducted so much of your music uh, throughout my life as a student slash early professional musician. Um, and it's really, really nice to finally get a chance to chat with you. Thank you, Darren. I didn't know you conducted it also. That's very cool. Yeah, fair bit <laughs> here and there. And I think most of us uh, in this team have some sort of a relationship with your music as well, um, be it as a performer or as a listener. It's so cool. I'll tell you, it's, it's surreal. It's it's still surreal to me that this idea that pieces of music that I you know I just sit in my little room. You can see here. This is this is just my garage. You know that I just sit in my garage and I <laughs> sort of try to steal fire from the gods, and that somehow it goes out in the world, and then like you said most or all of you have played it or or performed it it's just incredible to me i, I still can't get over it it's such a strange <laughs> thing yeah and it still blows your mind it's blowing my mind that 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 it's blowing yeah your mind. It, it truly blows my mind and it blows my mind for a couple of reasons one that like just how small the world is and that we that we're able to connect like this and then two i mean looking at all of you probably several of these pieces that you're talking or that we'll talk about, you weren't even alive when I wrote them. That's a very <laughs> odd thing too. Now to be on your, you know, here on your podcast and just thinking time is a flat circle. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> I think it, yeah, it might be interesting if you, if we do remember to do it, um, give a shout as to the year that you wrote each piece. If I can we'll remember. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> And we'll see what happens. Um, <laughs> cool. Yes. So I think we'd like to start off um, by chatting with you a little bit on. Um, so we've kind of divided this chat into choral music, uh, winds and a bit of winds and orchestral and some questions about um, creative careers, if that's all right. Nice. Nice. So let's kick it off. I think we've got. Oh, is this me on the first question? Right. Yes. <laughs> so, Eric. Um, <laughs> Uh, choral music is often seen as a genre that's steeped in tradition. And of course, as I understand, um, you've sung um, as a chorister in your early kind of, you know, days as a young musician. In your music, how do you reinvent the wheel um, in working in this genre with such a huge baggage of tradition? My God. Uh... <laughs> Not intentionally, I will say that. So <laughs> truly, never once did I sit down and think, I'll do something new, or this is this is shiny, or this is breaking from tradition, or reinventing tradition. I think I came to choral music pretty late. I was only 18 when I started singing. I was really only 20 when I started to really read music. And so all of my influences before I found choral music were film music and video game music and pop and and just nothing that had anything to do with choir. And so oftentimes, especially when I look back at the first 10 years of pieces that I wrote as choir, as, as a choir composer, I, I hear those influences, if that makes sense. Like, like I hear as much yeah. the, the, like the, the soundtrack to Twin Peaks as I do uh, Monteverdi or Talis. Do you know what I mean? And so I think it's just the weird stew of influences that all got mixed together that ended up sounding inventive, if you will. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's an interesting thought because it's kind of, you know, especially in, in, in this day and age, we have so much access to all sorts of music that's out there, genres, time periods and stuff like that. And everything just somehow feeds in to how we conceive music and you know, how yeah, exactly. Kind of, and I, I never thought know, of myself right. as a classical yeah. composer. I just thought of myself as I love this thing that I'm doing, singing in choirs. And here's my take on it here. You know, I, I love yeah. these things. I love these things. I love these. But so much of it was it was influenced by, you know, Pink Floyd and Stevie Wonder and, and John Williams <laughs> as much as it was anything else. Yeah. 
Um, I'm really curious about your approach to melody because I think especially in new music, melodic kind of structures are a little bit kind of out of style in a certain sense. Certainly some new music has it, but I think that's one of the reasons your music resonates with so many people is because of the really memorable melodic writing. So I'm just curious your approach to kind of writing melodies, if it just sort of strikes you, like you said, inspiration from the gods or something like that, or if there's techniques you use and just kind of your approach to doing uh, thank uh, melodic writing. Thank you for saying that. You know, it's, it's funny because I, the thing that you said at the very beginning, it's, I find it fascinating as I've, I, I ended up doing a master's degree in music. And so I'm, I've got an education now, but I still don't think of myself as an academic composer. Right. And like when you said it's, it's out of style, say to write melodically, it's funny. It's totally in style for everybody, but composers. Do you know what I mean? It's only academic composers that have all decided that it's gauche or it's old fashioned or it's paper thin or whatever. The rest of the world loves melody. This is what, how we all communicate with each other. And so I, I think like from 35,000 feet, I just never fell into that, that camp where I thought I'm writing for the tradition of composition, as opposed to I'm writing to communicate an idea, if you know what I mean. So, so when I sit down to write a melody, well, maybe that's the best way to say it. I really don't sit down to write a melody. What happens is I get this kind of strange itch. It's like an ache in the back of my throat. And I feel like I want to sing something, but I'm, I'm not a very good singer. I heard the American composer once, Ned Roram, say the reason composers compose is because they can't sing. I think that's really true. <laughs> and so there's this thing that I want to sing out in me and then Sometimes I'll sit at the piano or, or I'll just be humming and I'll just, I'll try to find the changes. But at some point it becomes unbearable. It's not, it's not a romantic like movie version of it. It's, it's awful. It's, I can't sleep. There's a thing that I'm, I keep, and I sing variation and variation and variation. Maybe it's this, maybe it's this, maybe it's this. And I just am in agony. I just could go on for days or weeks, but then some morning I wake up and I sing the thing and I think, Oh, of course, that's what it is. And it's always been that. I, like, like I've been traveling around the world to find the thing that was sitting right in front of me. It seems so obvious, um, and not remotely to compare myself to Michelangelo, but Michelangelo has that beautiful quote about the idea that the statue is encased in the block of marble and his job is to chip away the marble and, and reveal the statue. Whenever I find a melody that I'm really happy with, that's how it feels isn't like I built it more like it, it was there humming and I just pulled it out of the ether. Yeah. No, I, I think that's, that's sort of relatable to a lot of people of like, you, you almost like you get an inkling that something's there, but you don't know how to pull it out yet. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Yeah, absolutely. And sorry, just kind of chipping in as well. Um, do you write on a piano or do you sing some mm. and hum and figure things out kind of where, where does it come from? Typically physically? I, I either write it, I've, I write it piano, paper and pencil and more and more and more. I try to get away from the piano and write as much in my head as possible, put it down on paper and then check it on the piano. Um, but I find that when I'm writing at the piano, I, I find that there's just muscle memory from playing piano so if I play this chord, then my hands just want to do this and then they want to do this. And <laughs> and if I'm thinking more conceptually and just on paper, then I end up, I think, making more, uh, make better choices. I, I say all of that, but I wish you could see what I'm surrounded by right now, which is just so much electronic gear. There's synths and tape <laughs> machines and modular racks. And it's it's all this, maybe we can talk about it later, but I'm writing a piece right now for, for choir strings and and electronics. And so now I've, I've abandoned paper and pencil. I've abandoned the piano. I'm just, uh, I'm in, in, you know, like in dials and, and cables right now. I didn't know that that was in the works as well, but it seems like something that's quite kind of, because the, the music that I'm, I'm used to hearing from you are, are quite acoustic and it's nice that there's some electronic elements coming in. I mean, Thank you. Yeah, it, yeah. It, for me, it's like, like returning home because I spent, until I was 18, that's all I did was, was synth pop music and film scores without films. And so 
I had keyboards <laughs> and drum machines and tape machines, and that's that's what I was obsessed with. And so, in a way, I feel like for thirty plus years, I've been pretending to be a classical composer, but really, I'm a synth guy. <laughs> that's very cool. Yeah. yeah. Just out of curiosity, when's it um, premiering, and who's premiering? Uh, unfortunately, I can't say, but oh, it's, okay. it, it, oh. but I'll let you know as soon as I'm allowed to say it. But but okay, um, yeah. just just to say that that it'll be within the year. So I'm like, okay, it's, so, it's all hands ooh. on deck right now. I'm I'm like, I'm, you know, we were joking before this started that that time is a flat circle, right? And it's like, <laughs> so I've got about ten months to write this thing, and. It used to be that 10 months seemed like a lifetime to me. And now it's like, what am I doing? Oh my God, I'm never going to make it 10 months. I'm only got 10 <laughs> yeah. months, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's, I mean, I think, yeah, that there's some sense to that as well, because I like for me, especially just kind of thinking back in my experience, um, when there's a deadline, it's not like, I usually write all the way down to the wire. And it's usually not because I procrastinate but more that, you know, the music is there. It's just about refining it and refining it and refining mm. it all the way and using all the time that you have to get it into the best state possible. Yep, that's it. So, yeah. I also, I don't know if you experienced this, Darren, but I, I have this thing where um, oftentimes when I'm composing, I get, I get paralyzed by, by possibility. You know, that, mm. that it could be this and it could be this and it could be this and it could be this. And tomorrow, like you said, refining tomorrow, I'm always going to be a better composer than I am today. So I'll just wait till tomorrow or maybe. And what I don't do is make a decision. Right. So I just endlessly the procrastination part is I'll just keep my options open. And then at some point in the writing process, the, the fear of not finishing gets greater than the fear of starting. And then I just start making decisions, whether they're good or not. It's just, I, I just, I, I always have this saying in my, in my mind, which is, well, this is the army we're going to war with. It might be the, might not be the best army, but that's, <laughs> we're, we're, we're out of days. So, so yeah, I'll, I'll use exactly how much time I have. You know, if I have five years to write a three minute piece, it'll take me five years. Mm. Um, it's so dead, deadlines are a good thing. It's the only reason I finish yeah. anything. <laughs> so relatable. Yeah. So um, let's move on to another aspect, which is um, texts for for your pieces. Mm. I seem to remember that um, for uh, Sleep, for instance, that was one of the pieces that I had the pleasure of performing, and it's one of my favorites as well. Um, I seem to remember that you had difficulty uh, getting the rights of that text and then somebody else made like something that, that was similar. How does it usually work um, with, with texts? Like, where do you get them from? How do you obtain the rights? Um, what's, what's the usual process for that kind of thing? It's true with sleep. Sleep was supposed to be Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening by Robert Frost. I said it, they wouldn't let me use it. And so uh, my dear friend, Charles Anthony Silvestri, replaced it word for word. So you can you can like actually just put the Robert Frost on top of the music and sing it. And you can see exactly the way it was originally supposed to go. Tony wrote a poem that matched it exactly. Oh. Yeah, and it's it's Tony actually made it better. It's um if you go back in there's there's a bootleg YouTube uh, video where where a choir recorded the the original stopping by woods and so you can actually hear what it sounds like with those original words. And oh wow, I didn't know that. Genuinely, Tony's interesting. Yeah, Tony's is a better setting. There's just no question. In so many different ways, <laughs> he really saved the piece, um, and saved me because otherwise it would have sat under my bed until 2038 or whenever it became public domain. But it's funny that you say usual way because I I think there is no usual way. Like the easiest way is if a a poem is in public domain, then. You just set it to music, just set it to music. I mean, that's already a, a big mountain to climb, but you just set it to music and you don't have to worry about anything else. If it's a poem that's not in public domain, then there starts this, this conversation between you and the publisher. And the publisher can take months or even years to even respond to you if you're lucky and you're trying to find all these people who might know somebody who might know somebody. And then they might come back with a very terse, one sentence reply, which is no, just no. So I've had this happen a number of times with poets that I was desperate to set. There's an American poet named Shel Silverstein. 
He wrote this very famous book called Where the Sidewalk Ends. It's a children's book. It's just brilliant, beautiful. And Shel Silverstein's estate, the people who oversee his stuff, just no, period, no. We want to protect the brand. We don't want anybody. So they don't even want to have the conversation. So the other weird way that I do it is I make it myself. So either I work with a living poet like Charles Anthony Silvestri, and we kind of craft a whole thing together. Like when we wrote Leonardo Dreams of His Flying Machine, he, it was basically like we were sitting next to each other and I was saying, now I need a line like this and now it needs to be this and what if it did this and he suggests something and it, it kind of goes back and forth. Or very, very lately, I've been writing my own poetry. Um, and for a while I did that under a pseudonym so that nobody would know that it was me. <laughs> <laughs> it's all gonna be out then. <laughs> yeah, now it's out there. Now the secret's been revealed. Yeah, I, I, I learned a long time ago that, that for whatever reason, critics would punch really hard when they thought I had written the poetry. I didn't know, I don't know why. You know, somehow composers aren't supposed to be poets. I'm not saying I'm a poet of any renown, but sometimes I know what I want. But, um, so there's a few pieces, like Luke Sarumque is, the poetry was written by Edward Esch, which is my pseudonym. It translated by Tony Silvestri, but yeah, I wrote that poem, but I just didn't want to put it on there because I knew that, that it wouldn't be regarded as seriously somehow if I had, if, if I were the poet. Um, but lately I've been, I've been braving it and putting my name on things that I've written the poetry to. Wow, that's fascinating. Right, Jolene? Yeah. Um, could you tell us about your collaborative um, album, Home, with Christopher Glynn? How did this project came to be and how does the collaboration work between the two of you? Ah, well, it was between Christopher Glynn, the pianist, um, and Emma, the cellist, and Vocus 8, the, the choir, uh. right? So what happened was it started with, well, Chris and I, Christopher Glenn, the pianist, he and I have been working together for years and years and years. In fact, I can't, I don't know if I've ever recorded anything where I'm conducting that he's not the pianist on it. Um, so I just know Chris and I, I love his musicality and, and I trust him so much. When Home came about because we I've been trying to do something with Vultures 8 for years and years and years. We were kind of mutual admiration society. And we could never make the schedules work. I mean, their schedule is so bonkers. They're all over the world all the time and recording and I don't know how they do it. But we finally found a time and then I and Andrew, we both got sick with COVID. So we had to cancel that and then we pushed it back again. And finally, we were able to do this thing where we were gonna do a very small performance of this piece called The Sacred Veil. It's one of my newer works. It's this hour long piece for piano, cello and choir. So that's where Emma comes in. That's where Chris comes in. And we did the performance and it was only during the rehearsal of the performance that we started thinking, oh my God, we've got something incredibly special here. This is, it's pretty magical. And that's then when we uh, had the conversation with Decca and said, I, th I think we've got an album here. And so we, we added on a couple of more pieces to, to round it out as an album. And I have to say just the experience of making that, that recording was, uh, was transcendent. Some of the best music making of my life. Um, I'm not sure I had very much to do. I mean, Vocious 8 works without a conductor, right? So it's not like they need me. <laughs> so, so a lot of it was just me sort of interpretive dancing in front of them, but it, it was just push and pull and so, so, so musical. Um, yeah, it was, it was a glorious experience. Every composer should get the chance to have, have their music performed like that. That sounds beautiful. I mean, the piece is so beautiful as well. Like, Thank you. I had to listen to it. It's now kind of like my, my like songs. I kind of just loop it sometimes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Oh, actually, to add on on this, since you have like Chris Christopher to like collaborate with you, does he actually give you some inputs as well as a performer? Like, uh, like for me, my partner and I, we we he sometimes gives me some ideas on compositions. He's a violinist. Does, mm. does Christopher also give you some ideas like that? Yeah, absolutely. Usually with Chris, the stuff that we've done, it's it's already written. So it's, it's not like he says, this is unplayable, you know, or, or have you considered this? Or, although he would certainly say it to me if it were. Um, but what will, I always, uh, when I'm conducting, because I always think of myself as a composer first, who just happens to be, I sort of tricked my way into standing in front of a, 
any group of people and waving my arms around. And so I always defer to the experts. So with Christopher, for instance, very rarely would I say to him, will you do it like this? It would be more like, what do you think is the best way to do this? And then Christopher would say, well, we could do this or we could do this and we do this. And, oh, that, that one, that's beautiful. And then oftentimes he'll come to me and just say, what if we did this? You know, what if played this way or pedaled here or brought this out a little bit? And every time he's right, like his instincts are always spot on. I guess we just trust the musician sometimes. They, they know best. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> this is, a, I'm, I'm a big fan of film. And, um, and one of the things that they always say about movies is that if you can get the script really good, and you can cast it really well, you've got a very good shot at making a decent movie. If you don't have those two things, you're in big trouble. And I think this all the time about composing as well, that if, if it's really well written, that if there's a lot of integrity and every note is there for a reason, and then you get the right players to, to bring out that music, it's really hard to mess it up. You know, it's um, then, especially for the conductor, actually, the conductor has to actively be trying to ruin the piece, <laughs> which can happen from time to time. I'm Gosh. sure we've all seen that too, but but you know what I mean? It's like, uh, isn't that the worst when, when you're in a room? This has happened to me when I'm conducting, when you're in a room and everyone can tell the conductor is the problem. <laughs> oh. It's the worst experience, but it's just, it's, yeah. It's, um, I had, I had an experience, uh, this actually happened to me where I was conducting a piece that I wrote called Equus with for orchestra and chorus and it's incredibly difficult to conduct it's easily the hardest thing i've ever conducted and i lose sleep every time i have to conduct it and um mm -hmm. we were in the dress rehearsal this is in minnesota so professional orchestra fantastic huge chorus and there's these 16 bars of equus where it was very clear that i was the problem that i couldn't keep everybody together it was a terrible feeling but then i just said to Everyone, I said, guys, I've got an idea that when we get to letter K here, I'm going to give the downbeat and then I'm just going to put my hands down. And I want you to take 16 bars and I'll pick you back up the next letter. And it was the most extraordinary thing because what happened was we got to that moment, I put my hands down and then you could see everybody, you know, all these, these pros lean in. They're suddenly, they're like, they're investing. It's their music, right? They're going to make this happen. And it sounded perfect way better than it ever would have with me conducting and it was such a valuable lesson for me which is that oftentimes what the group needs is for you to let go the reins like just let them run let them ride mm. and um i try to do that as often as possible now i love youtube comments where people are looking at videos of me conducting they're like this dude needs to take some conducting lessons he has no idea what he's doing and the reason i love that is because if you listen to it it sounds fantastic so it's like, obviously something's going right here, right? So oftentimes what I'm doing is I'm, I'm not work, I'm not conducting like, here's one. It's like, let's just sort of empowering the musicians to be, to be better together. I guess in a way it's like, kind of let the music flow into the musician, let them express it. It's more natural than just do this, do that. That's exactly <laughs> right, yeah. And then they take ownership of it, right? And then you can really hear the difference, I find, between players who are just, like you said, do this, do that. They, you know, they're just playing accurately and together and making an ensemble. But then when a group takes it into their hearts, when they, they're like, okay, this is ours. Let's bring this thing to life. That, the music actually changes. It, um, and then the best part is that's when the audience can feel it. Then, then the listeners all get tingly and, and shiny and it's like, that was an extraordinary experience. Yeah. Does that approach to conducting in terms of like, you know, giving musicians the freedom to take ownership of, of the music, does that extend to the way you communicate with them and speak to them in rehearsal as mm. well on top of just gesturing? Such a good question. I think absolutely. One of the things that I always do when I'm, when I'm conducting and I, I don't know if I started this off doing this intentionally or if it's just because I'm from California, but, um, <laughs> is that I'm never, I'm never, ever negative during rehearsal. It's always couched in the, in the positive. And I try never to use the word I, like I want this from a group. I'll say we, or let's, or can we, or shout. So it's 
endlessly rebranding this idea that we're in this together. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah, so so I I'm, I try to create an atmosphere where it's it's joyful and it's and also that it's light. That no matter how big or stressful the gig that's coming up is, it's just music. We're just making music <laughs> because nobody performs well when uh, you know when they feel like this. But if everyone's relaxed and and just sort of. Yeah, they, they let go of the steering wheel a little bit. Then everybody just plays better. Everything just just blossoms, but a little easier. Yeah, absolutely. That's a yeah. That's a lot of gems that you've fed us with. <laughs> <laughs> it's more encouraging people than it is to say yes or no. Yeah, um, I always. Yeah, I believe. Yeah, real real quick, not to interrupt, Sorry, Darren, but just that I always thought my superpower when I was working with professional groups, especially when I come to England, is that I'm just nice. Because so often, they're, especially British singers, they're so unused to having somebody just be positive with them and even more appreciative. Like, like sometimes I'm so moved by the sound, I'm moved to tears. And I think the singers are very, very unused to the conductor actually enjoying their performance up there. So I always feel like, like what happens for me is I get handed this racehorse and then I just, you know, like, giddy up. And then let them run, you know, and it's like, and then somehow I weirdly take credit for that. You know, I turn around, it's like, that's right. The Eric Whitaker singers. And I just, you know, and I take this big bow, but it's like, actually, all he did was just, just fed the horse as well and let him run. Yeah, that's a, that's a really beautiful metaphor. I mean, I was, I was born in Singapore, uh, but of course now I'm, now I'm in England. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I feel actually I'm, on the contrary, I feel like English musicians are a lot happier <laughs> really do you find it's even and even a lot, more intense yeah, in singapore yeah, it's even more intense and and um even yeah i guess conductors there tend to be a bit more tight to some degree yeah it, um yeah it's funny because you, you get, it's interesting you, you get accurate performances that way but i don't know if yeah. you always get inspired performances that way yeah and i'd much rather have some rough edges around a performance and have it feel like like ugh, you know just so breathless and 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 full of life then have it be note perfect and have it you can hear the terror in the plane if you know what i mean <laughs> <laughs> i have to yeah. agree with uh, darren on that one actually i was studying taiwan years ago and it's literally the same thing everyone is so stressed i can see their faces like oh, i gotta get this right because there are sometimes the conductor actually calls out the musicians like you stand up play it again oh my god it's just terrible. I'm 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 just singing the choir there. I'm just because the the choir conductor is separate, and then we join in together to sing Gloria by Pulong. Yeah, and it was scary. Especially, I, I feel bad for the musicians because they got called out um, while everybody is watching them. So oh my god, that's this, just toxic. this idea of shaming people and and it's yeah, you know, ultimately conducting is even less about making music than it is about leadership. It's just how do you lead a group of people? And I've always thought the best way to lead a group of people is, um, yeah, is, is to inspire them, that they want to do it. They can't wait to. Um, my, my favorite thing is to finish a rehearsal and have everybody just be buzzing or to take a break. And you can just hear in the room, oh, you know, people are talking and, they're, you know, they go and they get their coffee and their, their biscuits and just everybody's just happy and or just alive. And I've been in those other rehearsals where it's just like, you know, they're like these poor dogs that have been yelled at all afternoon. It's, it's terrible. It's a terrible way to treat people. Absolutely. Jolene, I believe you've got the next question on the list. Oh, no, actually, you are the next one. Am I the next one? Yeah, I was just about to just kind of ask. Um, and this this is to some degree related to what we were talking about um, with your album work just now. Um, in the sense that do you as a composer, when it comes to orchestrating either for chorus or for orchestra or winds, do you consider, how much do you consider the acoustics of mm. um, where the piece may be performed? And do you write album music in a different way than you would write a piece of music if they were intended for a concert hall? A really interesting question. So I haven't yet written a piece for an album. 
In fact, the thing that I'm working on now is I'm imagining it as an album in the back of my mind. It'll be performed live too, but I'm writing like an album. I'm writing for this just to listen for a single audience member in headphones, which is a totally different experience than, than writing something that works on the concert stage. In my mind, I always have a dream acoustic, especially choral music, you know, um, but God knows I've been in enough performances where there's like a negative reverb. Do you know what I'm talking about? You must have performed mm. in things like this with carpet or, or curtains on the walls. And it's like, <laughs> like, like you sing and the sound actually goes back into your body, you know, it's so, <laughs> it's so awful. So I have, I have a dream acoustic in my mind, but at the same time, I think the, the longer and longer that I've been writing either music for orchestra or chorus or, or concert pen, I try to make it malleable. I, I try to make it so that it can withstand uh, not only all sorts of different acoustics, but frankly, all sorts of different conductors. Mm-hmm. That, And I think some of the pieces of mine that have, have been most performed are most performed also because they're malleable because they can withstand all sorts of different treatments of them, if that makes sense. And then there's, there's just a way to approach composing, I find, when it's designed, when I'm trying to design it for as many different people to be able to successfully perform it. That's not to say it's watered down. It's just to say, like, the most simple version of this is um, if you want a choir, for instance, to sing forte, one way to do it is to write forte, literally write the word F or fortissimo, FF. You can do it that way. The other way to do it is to take them on a nice open vowel and take them high in their register. Then they will sing forte whether you write forte or not. It doesn't matter. It's just going to happen. And I try to write more and more like that where it's just almost irregardless of what the dynamics or what the tempo is on the page, the thing just has to unfold in a certain way. I try to. I mean, it, half the time it's a wipeout disaster, but that's that's what I try to do when I'm when I'm writing. Yeah, it's it's so interesting you should mention that because there's um, like you know orchestration is very often tied to the expressive quality and the dynamic quality mm. of the piece as much as written instructions are. Yeah, that's um, that's exactly the best so, orchestrators. Yeah. I've I've seen this time and time again where, as a composer. Um, if I stand in front of a group of really fine professional musicians, orchestra, chorus, wind band, whatever, let's say it's a new piece and we start it through once, all right? So it's gonna be rough around the edges, especially if it's a tough piece. Second time through, it's gonna more or less start to sound like the piece, right? It might be rougher, there might be some hiccups, but it's gonna start. The third time through, if that group of people is still really struggling with the piece, it's the composer's problem and not the player's problem anymore. And so you could take something as, I mean, this is an older piece now, but something as virtuosic as as Stravinsky, The Rite of Spring. And it's so well orchestrated that it it just happens. The the, the or- instruments just know what to do. It's it, it does what each of them does well. They understand what their place in the in the the cathedral is, what what their little brick means. It's the orchestration is kind of everything. Um, and I, I marvel at the great orchestrators, Ravel, Prokofiev, Stravinsky, uh, Strauss, these guys who could just make an orchestra hum. It's, it's, uh, it's awe-inspiring, actually. And um, on that note, I think this might be a good segue into the next bit of our conversation, um, which is more about wind and orchestral mm. writing. Yeah, we've <laughs> got a question that's kind of in between now to, to start off. So there's a couple of pieces um, you did that are originally choral music and you transcribed them for for Wind Orchestra, mm. October, for instance, and the Seal Lullaby, yeah. other examples too. Um, so what, what's your motivation of, uh, for, for, for doing that? And um, how, how, how do you see the, do, do you see it as another piece or how, how close um, do you see those, those versions? Super, super interesting. So, the motivation for me always is because I straddle these different worlds. The different worlds rarely talk to each other. Do you know what I mean? Concert band people 
rarely talk to choir people and orchestra people don't talk to anybody. So, <laughs> right. So, so I remember like, for instance, for a few years, we were performing sleep with choir and you could feel it in the room. It's like, this just works. There's something beautiful. It doesn't matter if the choir has 10 people in it or if it has 200 people in it. It just, it's like, ah, oh, what a magnificent feeling this is. And I just kept thinking the band world will never experience this. They'll never know about it. They'll never know. So I decided, okay, let's see if I can turn this into a concert band piece. Now, what I've learned is that it might work over there. Like for instance, I think sleep works pretty well for concert band. And I've also done an orchestral version now and strings, but it's a different piece. It's wildly different. Um, and somehow it retains some of its original qualities, but it really becomes something else in the transference of it. Um, and I still, I wish I could say I can predict what that will be, but I can't. I, I'm surprised every single time when I hear a, the first performance of a transcription that I've done, where I think, oh my God. And with the case of October, where I turned that into the Alleluia, it was just, you know, I'd done, spent years and years conducting October and thought there's just such singing lines and, and, and I wanted to share that with, with the choral community. And then at the same time, Samuel Barber had done the opposite, right? So he very famously as a student written um, uh, Adagio for Strings. And then later on, transcribed that for choir, turned that into an yeah. unused day, right? So I thought, okay, here's a challenge to do this, right? And, and I chose the Alleluia partly because I was at Cambridge University in residence at the time. They needed kind of a liturgical piece, but more because the word Alleluia, is, it just has all the great values, vowels you need. Alleluia, that's it. That, and then an amen, you even get the N at the end. So it's, it's the dream text for a choir to sing. And also as a challenge to myself, could I make the word Alleluia interesting for nine minutes? <laughs> which, which I wasn't <laughs> sure I could. Um, but I, I wrote my best version of that transcription. And then we sang it. And then immediately I realized, oh, there's lots of these different places that are, I'm going to have to lose what I thought was special about the band version in order to make the choral version work. And I did, my memory is I did six different performances with different choirs where I was constantly rewriting and rewriting and rewriting before I finally felt, okay, that works as a choral piece and not as a band transcription anymore. Yeah, yeah totally. Do you find yourself um, doing that kind of um, regularly going, like starting off with one version and then hearing it and then revising it or is that, um, more like, is that only for the transcriptions or is that something you, you do generally? Yeah, that's a good question. No, it's completely, that's, that's the only way I know how to write is, so I've given up on this idea that I'm going to present the players with the finished piece. What I do is I present them with my best guess. Like, I think this works, right? And then, but in the very first rehearsal, I ask everybody before we sing a note of it or play a note of it, everybody take out your pencils and get ready. And then we'll start and immediately I can tell if something's working or not. And so, okay, everybody measure four, altos do this, or French horns do this, cut measures five through six. Okay, we're gonna do, and then I'll often tell the, the group, we're not gonna rehearse this bit of it because I'm gonna go home tonight and rewrite it anyway and I'll come back tomorrow and then it'll be different. And so I'll just rewrite and rewrite and rewrite until I'm out of time. Until I've, I've had a couple different times, I've had choirs especially tell me like 20 minutes before the performance, they're like, enough enough no more changes <laughs> we're singing this <laughs> oh no <laughs> yeah it's just you know it's it's uh, it can always be a little bit better right there's always a little bit of a tweak and there's always this dance between i thought this is this would work and and then actually it doesn't work as well as as i thought it would and i marvel at the at the great composers who just showed up with the finished score you know where they just lay down the quill and say That's how that goes. It's just it's just mind blowing to me that that they can do that. Yeah, in in my experience, there's like two types of of, of composers: it's those ones and the ones that keep revising until there's no way of 
of, of keeping it. Yeah, right. I mean, I, I'm always heartened by Beethoven, <laughs> like like Beethoven, who is the giant of giants. And you see his manuscripts and some of the scratching out that he did was so violent that he actually tore through the paper. Right. So you think, OK, if Beethoven was also struggling like this, then it's OK for for us mortals yeah, if, he, if he if he does it so can we yeah yeah exactly because <laughs> because there's nothing more disheartening than looking at a mozart score where it's like this is the only score he just there's not even a second draft he just wrote this down this is how this goes you know and, and <laughs> you just can't or bach bach probably improvised it first and it was like i better write that down you know so i have something for thursday night and it's like oh my god these people are just playing at such a level it's staggering levels of musicianship. Um, so let's talk a little bit. We talked about your transcriptions, but some of your original music uh, for when band, yeah. uh, like Ghost Train and Godzilla Eats Las Vegas. So yeah. they're quite different than some of your choral music. I think you kind of embrace the ensemble in a way. Can you talk about what makes that music a little bit maybe more visceral and kind of having groove, a little bit more angular mm. type of music. It's an interesting facet of your composition aside from your choral music. Thank you, Luke. Yeah, it, it's it's funny because a lot of choir people don't know that I even have that that thing over there at all. And so they're always shocked if they hear something like, like Ghost Rider or Godzilla. Um, I, I like to think exactly what you said is that I embrace the ensemble. So if you've got seven percussionists on stage, you know, like let's let's it's it's like sitting in a in a McLaren or something and and only keeping it in first gear. Like, come on, let's take this thing out and drive. And so, um, so yeah, whatever whatever props I have on the table, I think influences the way the music is going to sound. And I know I keep talking about it like in circles here because I can't really talk about it. But this piece that I'm working on now, it's so different. I find with the electronics because. The, the instrumentation is different. So even my approach to writing has become has become different. And I love that because it gives me a chance to be innocent again, to be to, to feel like like I'm doing it for the first time. I mean, it's interesting because people definitely approach, say, chamber music very differently. And it's kind of acceptable to think you can think of chamber music very differently. But I think sometimes composers feel they need to kind of uh, keep their approach and style the same across all these different ensembles, mm. which I agree d doesn't make a lot of sense to me because, I mean, yes, in terms of maybe numbers or certain elements, some you can see some similarities between, say, wind band and orchestra, but they're quite different, you know, ensembles ultimately. Yeah, that's right. I mean, ideally, your voice is going to show up no matter what, right? Like, it's going to sound a yeah. little bit. But Ghost Train especially is the very first piece I wrote for instruments. So... It was like a kid in a candy store, you know, it was like, well, I could do this and I could do this and let's try this. And, yeah. and so, you know, it, it's so fun suddenly to be presented with all of these different costumes that you can try on in a way. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good way to, to put it as as writing for orchestras. That's what's kind of fun and fascinating about it is there's all these little like characters. you can play with. I love. Yeah, I love that. And it, like so. Later on in my career, I wrote a piece called Deep Field, which is a big orchestral work. And I remember really embracing this idea that strings can sing like voices, but they never have to breathe. And how liberating that was for me. Like, okay, we don't have to think about phrases in the way that I used to anymore. I can have three minutes of a, of a string pad and I might have the string players hate me at the end of it, but they can do it. Do you know what I mean? Um, and, and so just, yeah, you have these, it's just a totally different machine. It's like a bicycle and a, and a race car. Yeah, um, funny you should say that because uh, the next question is indeed about Deep Field. Ah. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it's, yeah, it's a long form piece. It's, uh, as I understand, around 22 minutes yeah. in length um, for orchestra and choir That's right. as well, I That's believe. Right. Yeah, um, so just out of curiosity, have you written a piece that has such a long form before prior to that and how do you structure your musical material over a 22 minute mm. long duration it's a three martini question um <laughs> we may have to we may have to do another uh, another episode if you're interested like, be, <laughs> i wouldn't mind <laughs> <laughs> thank you so honestly yeah i uh, love to chat with you anytime thanks well. Derek. <laughs> so the the short version of this is yes it was the longest piece that i'd written up to that point 
since then I wrote Sacred Veil, which is 12 movements. It's an hour long, but it's not one movement the way D Field is, which is, yeah, 22, 23 minutes. And what I have to do when, I, when I'm setting poetry, the structure is, is often implied in the poem, in the words itself. So I, I try to divine what the structure of the piece is based on the, the architecture of the music, of the, the words themselves. But with, with Deep Field, there's nothing. And we live in this time now where you, you could, I guess, but you just, you don't write sonata form, right? Like you listen to a Mozart symphony and there's a very, very, very defined structure before he writes a note of music, right? There's this, there's this, there's this. It's a fast movement, a slow movement, a very fast movement. It's, it's, and then it's, it took a century before people started breaking that apart and writing kind of tone poems and things without a typical structure. So I spend a lot of time now making these drawings before I write a note of music, making drawings of what I call emotional architecture, which is the emotional journey that I want the players and the listeners to go on. And only then when I've got like sort of the dinosaur bones of this beast, then do I start to, to fill out the flesh of it, which is the, the music. Um, and so, so right now, for instance, this, sorry, keep talking about it. This piece that I'm working on right now, I can't tell you how many months have been spent on structure alone, just page after page after page and description and thinking and whittling down. It's all incredibly abstract. And what does this mean? And what does this mean? And how does that tie to that? And how does that tie to that? And why would this be here? And then I'm just now at the place where I feel like I could start to write music that in a fractal way will reflect what that, that giant structure is so that then there's no wasted notes. This is all the goal. As I always say, it's like half the time this doesn't work, but, <laughs> but that's how it was with deep field is, is just spending a lot, a lot of time making drawings, um, and, and figuring out what the structure was so I knew how to build the thing. Mm, yeah, so interesting. So, yeah, so essentially you've got like a, a visual representation of where the piece might go even before you put a note onto the That's sword. exactly right, yeah. yeah. And, and D-Field's a, a really clear example of that because what I wanted to teach was time and scale. You know, it's based on this Hubble telescope of galaxies that are billions of years away. So I wanted to teach time and scale. And one of the best ways to teach scale is to have the listener feel like they've arrived at a climax that is massive, only then later on to show them, oh, no, no, no. you thought that was, was massive? Look at this. <laughs> and then later on, okay, remember that thing that we thought was the biggest thing you could imagine? Let's triple that. But in order to do that, you really have to plan that, right? It's like, okay, so when I reach this first false climax, it can only get so big and the build can only be so long and it, all of that is so helpful to do in the abstract before making the nuts and bolts of it. Real quick, one of my favorite compositional pieces of advice, I can't even remember who said this, but I think about it all the time, is the idea of like the composer as the architect. Mm. It was put very simply of, if you're building a house, you don't start by picking out the lamp. You start by building the, by the plans so and the foundation. True. I, I couldn't yeah. agree. I, I think about this all the time too. My, the, the metaphor I always have for myself is that almost always composers start at the beginning of a piece and write to the end. And to me as an architect, that'd be like, okay, I'm gonna write the door. So let's write the perfect, and then you build the perfect door and you spend a lot of time on it. You get it just the right color, you get the right dimensions, you get the, and then you step through the door to, and you're like, oh shit. <laughs> you know, I, I, well, wait, where does the living room? Oh, but there was supposed to be, oh, I didn't think. And now what you've got to do is you got to go back and do all this work dismantling this door that frankly you've fallen in love with. It's really hard now to tear apart that door because you think that yeah. works. It's like, but that door is so good. And now you're stuck with the door as opposed to let's make this whole structure functional and then worry about the door. Um, it, takes, it takes real emotional discipline, I think, because what you want to do is dive in and you want to be inspired by the thing and you want it just to flood out of you. And I heard Quincy Jones once say that, that composing is like trying to paint a house with a Q-tip. And it's so true. It's like just so meticulous and, and slow. And yeah, I, I just think very few of us have that, that Mozart experience in Amadeus where he's, you know, where he's dictating the music to Salieri. Like 
here's how it goes. No. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I think, well, Eric, it's been, um, it, it's been such a wonderful time chatting with you about your music and, you know, talking about the pieces that so many of us have, you know, been, been so familiar with and have loved um, for this many years. I believe we've got one final question for you. Um, that's about a completely, well, I wouldn't say completely, but a slightly different topic, um, more about kind of making a career out of composing. Uh, and I believe Jolene has the mantle with that. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is a question because our listeners, most of our listeners, viewers, they are most of them are musicians. Some of them are like uh, people tr- interested in music. Uh, this is a um, question where like, what would be your advice for people who are interested in further studies in music? And, and another question is um, about workload. So um, I think all of us, I hope not all of us has experienced burnouts hmm. and it's terrible. And, you know, what would you do to kind of prevent it? Oof. Well, so going back to the first question, okay, so I'll tell you where the new school is. And the four of you will just laugh when I say this because this is your daily life. But the new way to learn is YouTube, period. Any subject you want to find, anything you want to know about, you can do the deepest possible dive. And there are such interesting, clever, eloquent people out there teaching like I'm, I'm doing all this modular synth stuff right now, which is as esoteric as you can possibly imagine. And you can't imagine what a community there is. I feel like I'm getting a degree. I'm going back to school <laughs> and watching these incredible people. And sometimes I even DM them and they DM me back and with que- you know, questions and answers. It's unbelievable. So I think anybody who wants to learn anything about music, especially classical music, start in, in YouTube. My God, there are such interesting, beautiful people. The other thing you can do is just try to expose yourself to music that you never would listen to. Never, ever, ever. And that's the easiest thing in the world to do now too, because if you've got Spotify or Apple Music or YouTube, every recorded piece of music out there is is up. And and try to wormhole your way into things that are a little uncomfortable. And and I would also encourage people to find things that are uncomfortable and then sit with them for a little, for a little bit. Some of my very favorite pieces of music, music that made me really grow in my understanding of music, were things that I didn't like at all the first time I heard them. A little bit like broccoli, you know? It's like you have to, <laughs> I do this thing, I've got a three-year-old son, and so the, the trick with him always is, he, the first bite he has to tell me, is it hot or is it cold? Okay, then he t- then the second bite he has to tell me, is it crunchy or is it soft? And then the third bite he has to tell me, is it sweet or is it sour? So he does all those things. Now, what he doesn't realize is that generally by the third time you've tasted something, you're used to it or you've learned to like it, right? So it's just this little game that gets played. So for your listeners, I just really encourage them to dive into the deep end of the pool and sit there for a little bit. You might find something really beautiful. The other thing about burnout, I I suppose this applies to everybody, but let's talk specifically to musicians for a minute. So burnout, I think, is rarely, rarely, rarely from actual exhaustion we we can all go we've experienced this where if we're doing something we truly love that we just can't wait to do we can work 16 hours in a row not even think about food not think about sleep we can do it for week upon week upon week we love doing that thing and actually doing it fuels us it it gives us all this inspiration so i think the burnout comes from uh from being overwhelmed by either you don't think that you're going to be able to meet whatever invented expectation you've got, either your parents or your outside critics who aren't even real maybe, or yourself. So you, you just get overwhelmed. Like, I'm, I can't do this. I can't do it to the level or I'm not going to pull it off in time. There's that kind of thing. Or there is a kind of academic study that can just, <laughs> that is not only dull, it is the cause of dullness. It can destroy the soul. And some of that needs to be done, and some of it is, you only learn years and years later on, is an absolute waste of time. And it's almost like a, a crucible that you have to endure as opposed to grow from. <laughs> and so when those things happen, the advice I always give is go back and do the thing that got you to fall in love with the thing in the first place. 
So for us, that's music, right? So what I do is I go back and I listen to Pink Floyd. I listen to Stevie Wonder. I listen to Prince. I listen to Erasure. I listen to Depeche Mode. I listen to Jean-Michel Jarre. I listen to Kraftwerk. I, I get in my car. I blast it. I'm not a classical musician anymore. I'm a 15-year-old kid just headbanging at how amazing this is. I want, I want music that's so loud that it moves my shirt. Do you know what I mean? I really want to feel it in my bones. And it's amazing how quickly it's, it's like a plant that hasn't been given water. You just pour some water. It's like, oh, wait, that's right. I love music. I love music. I just don't love this thing that I'm doing right here. So, so, and I think what happens oftentimes for students is you spend so much time with your finger on that third rail of academia that you forget that you actually love music. And you get so burned out and you just push through it and push through it and push through it that you finish a degree and actually you don't want to have anything to do with music anymore again. And that's a tragedy. Um, so yeah, the, the moment it starts to feel toxic, just take a step back and go make some music, the kind of music you really love without judgment, just have, just enjoy it. That's just wonderful advice. I mean, the amount of friends I see that actually got their degree, but not doing music anymore because of burnout is, it's surprisingly a lot, which is kind of sad because all of them are pretty talented, wonderful individuals. Yeah, it's a strange thing, isn't it? I mean, there's no question in order to become a, especially a classical musician, you gotta work your butt off. Like you really have to study and, and practice and spend a lot of time doing it. But Mark Twain, the, the American writer, he, he had this little saying, which is that when you dissect a frog, it can't jump anymore. And I find that so much of, of academia is about dissecting the thing, is about like going down to the molecular level of these things and just pulling it endlessly apart. You can't see it anymore. You can't see the thing, which is like, oh, this is just beautiful music. It's like what we talked about before with melodies. It's so funny how melodies are out of fashion now, but you know who's not out of fashion? Bach. Handel, Mozart, Debussy, Poulenc, like we all flock to see Puccini, Verdi. It's like, why? Because they wrote killer melodies. They move our souls. That's the, the language we speak. And academia somehow weirdly dismisses the, the humanity of music often, which is such a weird thing to do. Um, and it's the reason we all got into it in the first place. I agree. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And they make you pay for yeah. it. Academia, come on. Yes. <laughs> now I'm in debt and I don't like music anymore. Thanks, guys. Yeah, what what an interesting note to end. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. Burn the schools down. No, 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 no. I'm just Oh wait. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah. Funny enough, um, all four of us. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if you've kind of uh, discovered this in any way, shape, or form, Eric. Luke, Levin, Jolene, and I. We knew each other because we were all students at the RCM together. No way. Um, which is, of course, where you're based. At, well, I'm, I'm that's a, based yeah. And here I am talking about careers. Yeah. So. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> yeah, but so so you guys are a perfect example of. Have you all graduated now? It, are you, um, you're all three, yeah, yes. yeah. So, well, all three of us. So, yeah, so so anyway, I'm yeah, I'm doing a master's in a film school. Ah, okay, but so, but so obviously yeah. you're still going, you're like you're still banging away at it, and also, I've got to say to all four of your credit, you're doing what all musicians need to do, which is you're improvising a career. I'm sure when you started six years ago, you weren't like, you know, what we ought to do is make a podcast. That's 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 <laughs> what we need to do, right? But it's like, this is just the way it works. There is no path. I suppose there's some magical path where you are an oboist and you do an oboe audition and you land an orchestra gig and you're just there for 35 years. I suppose there is that thing. I think that happens to very few people. The rest of us, it's like we love music and we're just going to try to figure out a way to keep this in our life. And we're just going to push and pull and improvise and whatever new technology comes down the, the pike, we're going with that. You just got to stay loose and, and keep having fun with it. Yeah. yeah totally. Yeah. We're going to hit our two-year anniversary very soon, actually. Yeah. Woo. Congratulations. <laughs> Congratulations, guys. Thank you. Yeah, it's been it's been a really, really fun time um, doing this podcast um, with all of you. And to be chatting with you too, Eric. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thanks, Darren. We, we really learned a lot. This this is amazing. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, and I think the same can be said for like so many of, of our guests whom we've spoken to, like every single person 
you know, we just, we learn a lot and we get so inspired mm. um, from from our conversations um, and more to come. Definitely. That's really beautiful. I, I know I'll be tuning in. Yeah. So keep keep doing the good work, guys. And thank you so much for inviting me on. Thank you. Thank you. It was, it was an absolute pleasure. Yeah, thank yeah. you so much. <laughs> Follow us on Instagram and TikTok at composers underscore in underscore a underscore jukebox. We've got loads more interesting episodes cooking in the edit, which we can't wait to share. Subscribe to our pages on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts to be notified of future episodes.